and making a difference every day. Welcome to the Animal Care and Welfare Podcast, iBuzz, where we combine the science and practice of animal welfare in a fun and engaging way, where we answer questions, find solutions, discuss tools, and achieve results, all for happy animals and people. I'm your host, Sabrina Brando, and this podcast is brought to you by Animal Concepts, and the Practical Animal Welfare Science Membership Experience. Let's buzz! Welcome to another episode of iBuzz. Today we're going to talk all about enrichment and it's absolute delight to introduce to you my friend and colleague Mark Kingston-Jones who is joining us today from the UK. Hello! Hi Sabrina, how are you doing? I'm good, how are you? Yeah, good, thank you. Excellent! So Mark, you are the workshop coordinator for The Shape of Enrichment and the co-founder of Team Building with Byte. Tell us all about it. Uh, yeah, so, um, well, it basically, um, I started out actually as a, on a psychology degree. Um, I'd always wanted to work with animals, but um, I'd uh, been told at school that that wasn't going to be possible because I didn't have a biology background. So I went down the psychology route and luckily discovered um, partway through my course, um, Professor Hannah B. Cannon-Smith, um, who, uh, who led me back to doing animal stuff and allowed me to do some uh, research. Um, and that actually kind of kick-started my career because I started doing research with a remote control car with lions at Bledrum and Safari Park, which is an unusual way to start out um, a, a career, but um, it, it definitely helped. Um, so I always had a really strong enrichment kind of focus. Um, and then when I started working at the Safari Park after I graduated, I'd always planned to become a keeper but um, I actually decided to go down the education route temporarily um, because I really wanted to continue doing research and I knew that keepers didn't have time to collect data. Um, and then it kind of stuck. So um, I was at Blair Drummond uh, for um, a year and a half and then I moved down to Howlett's in Portland in Kent um, where I continued on the education track and in the end ended up as head of education and research there. Um, and after six years, um, left and to become self-employed so that I could take what I was doing with Shape and with team building further. So uh, team building with Byte is the business that uh, aims to, um, to keep us uh, fed and, and housed. Um, basically, what we do is we, um, we have corporate groups pay to come and build enrichment devices for the animals that we're working with. Um, and we work with 11 different collections right now around the UK. Um, so we design a team build for them that meets their goals, but it also designs something for the animals. Um, and then as a reward for their hard work at the end, they actually get to watch the, watch the animals get what, they, uh, what they've made. Um, and then through Shape, essentially, that's more working with keepers and students around the world um, who want to improve and develop their enrichment ideas. Um, so that has in the past involved a lot of traveling and stuff, but it's, uh, yeah, it definitely keeps life interesting, kind of juggling between the two. Wonderful. Well, before we move on to other topics, tell us more about this remote controlled, you know, for people who don't know your work, I know you had several, you know, prototypes of them and how you had to move from one into another. Tell us all about, and what, what is it called? 
Uh, so it was the Lion Rover. Um, so it was actually uh, named by the original product designer that I worked with. So I'd actually done a gap year in Africa doing some work with lions. And um, one of the guys that I traveled with uh, went and studied product design at Brighton Uni. So when uh, when Hannah set me up working with Blair Drummond, um, I just had a conversation with him one day and said, you know, do you think it would be possible for, for us to, to build a remote control car that would actually stand up to big cats? And he made the mistake of saying yes. Uh, and he still blames me for his first three gray hairs at the age of 21. Um, but um, yeah, essentially, he he managed to create a remote control car out of um, B&Q value drills. Um, and uh, and it was enough to test with the, the, the then pride of 20 Lions. So had a little aluminium shell and little um, uh, um, sort of uh, four by four kind of remote control tires. And um, yeah, we were able to test it with the Pride Alliance and, and it actually survived, which was the most incredible thing. Um, we had some issues with the motors, but, um, but it, it gave us enough data to show that actually this is a really positive step forward. Uh, and so then we managed to take it onto Lion Rover's versions two and three as well, um, which we then, I was working with some uh, engineering students from Strathclyde University for those two. Um, and they became more expensive, heavier and, uh, and uh, a lot more clunky. Um, in actual fact, the uh, the original design was probably the best. Um, but uh, but yeah, it was that it, it's a very powerful tool when it's working. Um, and it kind of taught me a lot of in, important lessons at the beginning about the the joys and the the heartbreaks of technological based enrichment. Um, but I still I still have plans for version four, even you know, fifteen years later, um, and, and how it could work. But it just requires a bit of money behind it to uh, to get it going again. Wonderful. So what is the aim of the Lion Rover and, and has it only been used with lions or and actually are any zoos or safari parks today using this device? Not that I'm aware of. Um, no. So the, 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 the only three that I'm aware of are the three that I've been involved with um, creating, um, mainly because it is so difficult to actually get, um, you know, the, the device working it's balancing that it needs to be able to survive attack by large carnivores with, you know, being able to be an effective, you know, fast moving car. Um, so the, um, all three designs actually survived the, the lions and that's all we were able to test it with at the time. Um, but the, um, because of the, the pressures that that puts on the system, um, they kind of were either quite difficult to drive or actually the, the final one was a hundred kilograms and could potentially do 30 miles an hour. So, that made it very dangerous, in fact, for driving around with lions. Um, but the idea was essentially to stimulate a, a full chasing scenario. So the stalk, the chase, the capture and the kill. Um, obviously, there's lots of different simpler versions of enrichment that we can do with big cats that stimulate, um, you know, different sections of that hunting repertoire. Um, but the idea behind this was to get all four of them in a full sequence, basically. Um, and we managed to get, you know, two or three of those out of the sequencing and we really didn't manage to get was stalking um, because we didn't get the device sort of far enough to be able to kind of develop ways of, of doing that. But um, again, I have ideas on that. It just needs a device that actually works, unfortunately. Excellent. Well, I can't wait to hear what your prototype number four will be and how that will operate. And of course, how, you know, this eventually will be implemented, hopefully in many zoos and other parks around the world. Sounds, sounds really great. Now you talked already about team building with Byte and what you do through your company and uh, together with your partners. You also have a patron program right now that we will make sure to link in the podcast details. 
Can you tell us more about the shape of enrichment for those uh, listening who don't know about this amazing organization? Yeah, absolutely. So the shape of enrichment is an international NGO. Um, it was founded by um, Valerie Hare and Karen Worley, um, both based in the US and um, essentially kind of Karen runs the, the kind of the online side of things with the, the publication and the website side of things and Val's run the um, workshop side. So delivering kind of capacity building training primarily in developing countries um, over the years. Um, I can't actually remember now how many countries that in total shape courses have been taught in. I think it's around 30 um, around the world. Um, and, um, and yeah, essentially the idea is that uh, shape has, two kind of key founding principles of creating goal-based and holistic enrichment programs for animals in any captive setting um, and shapes ethos is that you know we'll work with any anyone who's willing to work with us so we don't kind of push our way into places and say oh you know you need our training you need to work with us and you know it's we we're, we're like vampires we only come when we're invited um because the because of the sort of the um our resources are limited and so we really want to make sure the people that we're working with you know are really kind of planning to kind of implement the the, the changes that you know we can help them develop essentially um but normally it takes the form of um a talk workshop um over anywhere from three to six days um working with the keepers with a mix of kind of theory and practical stuff so yeah it's a really it's a really great experience Yes, and what is wonderful in these workshops and all the work that you're doing all around the world is that in the facility you also construct, you actually, the, the people go through the theory and then the building, so the facility also is, is left with a lot of new implemented structures and enrichment devices, right? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, the, the, at the end of it, we, we always have that practical bit wherever possible so that the, the groups essentially go through the, the process that we've taught they get given an animal to work with they get given a goal and then they have to go through the process to de design and pitch and create and test um and yeah obviously we we leave behind whatever whatever's been created so we do always sort of you know aim to say that whatever we are leaving behind is probably going to be a prototype because we don't always have like you know a huge quantity of materials and things to work with um but yeah absolutely it's it's also helping the, the places that have hosted us to to have something left behind as well Wonderful. So through shape and through team building with bite, you work a lot around the topic of environmental enrichment. Can you talk more about that? And also specifically, what do you mean when you say holistic or goal oriented approaches? Yeah. So there's, I mean, there's lots of definitions of, of what enrichment is. Different people have kind of different viewpoints on, you know, what enrichment is. And there's some kind of, uh, older kind of definitions of enrichment which I think are now hopefully starting to kind of pass out of circulation a bit the idea of them being like toys and, and extras but essentially usually when we're talking about enrichment we're talking about creating behavioral opportunities um, and giving the animals some choice and control basically deciding if and how they want to interact with a change in their environment or a, a development in their environment essentially um, so that could be through, you know, um, feeding devices. It could be through changes in physical habitat. It could be through sort of sensory opportunities, um, but covering covering everything that the animal hopefully wants and needs um, in a in a captive setting. Um, obviously, we could never recreate the entire kind of wild 
environment and situation you know that would be pretty impossible i think but i think what we can do is use enrichment to provide animals with the best quality of life possible um, and so what we mean by kind of creating a holistic program is one that as i say covers everything that the animal you know should want or need um, and what we talk about when we're talking about a goal focused program it's it's really not just saying i'm going to chuck this boomer ball in today because i think it's a good idea and the animal seems to like it it's really thinking about you know what is the behavioral goal or the management goal or the biological goal of putting in um, this device what am i hoping to achieve and if you have that focus from the beginning you can then actually decide well did it work or not because if you just think oh well, i'm just going to chuck the boomer ball in you know just because if there's no actual purpose behind it then how do you evaluate if you've actually been successful and you've actually created an enrichment and improvement in the animal's overall life whereas if it's goal focused then you can really say well this is what i hope to achieve this is what it did achieve you know did i achieve enrichment did it did it did it create an improvement and what type of goals are we talking about could the goal be something like um, I want the animal to have a fun time or does it have to be very specific? Can you talk a little bit more about types of goals? Yeah, no, absolutely. No, they can be very broad. I mean, one again, when we're doing our workshops, we generally give the participants fairly wide goals because we want them, you know, we want them to be able to achieve as much as possible. So like common ones that we might use in that sort of situation could be that we want to increase investigative behavior in meerkats. And obviously that's, you know, that's very broad investigative behavior could involve sensory stuff. It could involve foraging behavior. It could involve moving around the enclosure more. Um, so you can have, you know, incredibly broad um, goals like that. But you could also then focus in, you know, again, if there's something really specific behaviorally or biologically that you want to achieve, you, you could focus in on that. So, for example, if if you were feeding a small cat, on a processed diet but you wanted to allow them the feather plucking behavior that you know is, is so important to their kind of you know that, that they're motivated to do um, then creating scenarios where they could still do that kind of feather plucking behavior if that makes sense so you know from very broad to very specific and and it doesn't it can also be as i say like a management goal so you know we want to increase visibility in front of the public i have absolutely no problem with using that as an enrichment goal because ultimately as long as it is enrichment then the animal is going to benefit and it's certainly preferable to for example okay we need to lock the animal out on show we need to block areas for the animal where they can't be seen kind of thing so you're instead of forcing an animal somewhere you're encouraging them and giving them opportunity to show behaviors to have an enhancement in welfare in a position which actually also benefits the public as well. And we, we design a lot of our enrichment items um, to kind of meet both goals, because I think certainly in, in the case of zoo settings anyway, obviously, you know, and, and pub sanctuaries that are open to the public, um, allowing, you know, members of the public to see those incredible behaviors, I think is such a fantastic educational opportunity. It's such a way to engage people in what we, we do day to day that I think you know, sometimes it's a shame where we have these amazing enrichment ideas, but we have to, you know, because of the way they look or because of, you know, various things, we have to kind of do them off show behind the scenes where no one ever gets to see that incredible thing. Um, so, um, so whenever possible, you know, I, I think that's actually quite a positive goal to use. Um, 
so yeah as i say there's there's lots of different the, the goals really depend on what you're trying to achieve there's no set hierarchy on all this goal is you know the thing that you should really be aiming for and you know this is the kind of stuff that you should avoid if, as long as it's always an enhancement in welfare yes and that's interesting right because there's so much to say about so enrichment you know kind of implies that it makes your life better like it optimizes welfare it increases positive welfare states it's really enriching to participate or to do certain behaviors either intrinsically or extrinsically and at the mm -hmm. same time we're also talking about you know kind of activating or facilitating or you know having animal have different affordances in their environment but that might actually be very important to the maintenance of their physical fitness or cardiovascular system or the maintenance of a behavioral repertoire, but might not actually be so enriching because, you know, in, and in the moment it might actually be quite challenging or it might be quite difficult or it might be even a little scary uh, until you, you know, learn how to deal with it or you have options to move away from it. And so I think this is an interesting part, right, where you are thinking about environmental enrichment from the broadest perspective. And at the same time, you know, how do you balance this kind of, you know, positive welfare states most of the time, but then also the other challenges on the other side, right? And, and Graham Law was a great advocate of all these kind of challenges and looking for the lines. Uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Uh, as well yeah i mean i think so uh, yes i think the well so a i i much prefer that definition of enrichment to uh, as i say the, the kind of the older view that it was you know it was just an add-on it was an extra so the idea that you know actually because it's an extra it's everything else is good and it doesn't matter if it doesn't get put in i think you know really viewing viewing things like these challenges as you know uh, part and parcel of what we need to do to keep our animals fit and healthy and, and happy is really critical to the kind of the current view on enrichment but no I think I, I think the idea of creating challenge and you know sometimes you know small stresses is is still enhancing the animal's well-being by you know preparing them for you know possibilities in the future so for example you know some of the animals that we deal with um um are very neophobic so um they're afraid of new things so if you suddenly went in and put in a whole load of new enrichments to make their lives better that actually could be the worst thing in the world for them because they're suddenly you know they've lived in this sterile environment that hasn't changed for you know years and years and years and suddenly everything's changed and although you've done it in the, you know with the best of intentions that's really really scary for them um that doesn't mean that we then give up with that animal and we just think, well, it's happy living in a sterile environment. It doesn't need anything. What it means is we just have to change our tack and how we do that kind of thing. So by slowly introducing changes in a manner that the animal's able to deal with them, you know, that might cause a little bit of, you know, anxiety or stress that's short term that they, they kind of deal with and, and move on from, then you're actually building resilience because obviously there is so much stuff that happens in an animal's you know a captive animal's life that is outside of their control you know stressful situations you know things like that and those animals that are used to dealing with changes and stresses and coping with them appropriately and, and having coping mechanisms to deal with them appropriately you know then 
those things won't be as detrimental to them in the long term. So, um, you know, rather than saying, oh, well, you know, actually by putting new stuff in with this animal, it's not, it's not enriching because it's not fun. Um, we just leave it as it is. It's actually, it's changing that focus to being like, well, no, this is really going to develop it long term. And, you know, as you say, is actually going to improve their mental health and their physical health in the long term. So it's worth persevering with that program and sort of taking that, you know, that long view. Absolutely. I completely agree with that. And I think, you know, like you say, you know, we want to uh, build in re uh, resilience. We want to facilitate environments that allow animals to, you know, build resilience, gain confidence, you know, have mastery, behavioral competence also, as John Cole often uh, talks about it. You know, this whole idea uh, as, as a muscle, actually, to be trained by the animal themselves uh -huh. and to explore and to become, you know, uh, better at all kinds of different things uh, and through themselves, as you say, you know, choices and control over options. That's really wonderful. And you talk also much in your work about, you know, the importance of, you know, enrichment in human, for animals in human care. And so can you talk a little bit about why that is so important to have environmental enrichment programs? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I always say, uh, that again the uh, one of the biggest kind of um challenges i often face when talking to people about enrichment is again this idea that it's an extra and it's an add-on and it you know as i say it's it, it doesn't matter if okay today we're really really busy so but the animals still got fed the animals still got cleaned out so its welfare is good um in my opinion that isn't good welfare if we if we skip the enrichment side then then you can't say you've got good welfare because if every if that animal received you know three nicely chopped meals in a bowl that didn't stimulate it that didn't you know engage it that didn't give it you know some some form of kind of you know natural behavioral kind of stimulation or something along those lines then i don't think we can claim that that's a a, a positive welfare state i think you know we owe it to our animals to keep them you know, as challenged and as in a positive way as possible. And I think, you know, and, and we know um, that actually that has a really positive effect on, on you know, psychologically. We, we know we've known for years and years now since the 80s about contra freeloading where animals prefer working for food, even when there's free food available. You know, the very fact that this sort of psychological state exists really sort of is for me a screaming red flag that, you know, we they they need these challenges in their lives and so to just kind of the idea that like food is love and we just you know we pamper animals and we give them you know whatever they possibly want you know in, in a sort of a freebie form I think is 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 an idea that we kind of need to get over and kind of and and really challenge within within our community kind of thing sort of to make sure that we're providing the best possible care I'm not sure if that really answers your question actually <laughs> Absolutely, you did. And also because I know you and I have worked together for years and we do enrichment workshops together. And, you know, and, and when you are building, because you and your colleagues do an amazing amount of building and designing of different enrichment, you also talk very much about the importance of, you know, we have a habitat, we have an environment for the animal, but of course the animal lives there the whole time. So, you know, we need to be adding and changing things in a safe way and of course observing where animals are so we're not changing everything and all the things that are valuable to them so you really 
instill this importance of even though we have a very nice and complex environment and we build new things, it is important to keep thinking about, you know, how do you keep that dynamic, right? And so I think, I think you are really showing through your work the importance of these why animals need enrichment and also why this is key uh, as a building block for, for a good animal welfare program. And of course, you already said, you know, the importance of is this actually, you know, arriving at the goal that we had? Or maybe animals have another idea of what they want to do with that enrichment activity that we just put in. And But you talk about the importance of assessing enrichment. Can you talk more to in what ways do you assess and at what stages perhaps do you do that? Or how often do you think it's necessary? Can you say more about uh, enrichment assessment? Yeah, I think, I mean, again, so that, as you said, you know, when even though you have a very clear goal in mind, that doesn't mean that the animal hasn't got completely different ideas to you. Um, and again, for me, that's one of the most rewarding things. And we spent hours and hours designing, you know, this amazing enrichment item that we've, you know, decided is going to, you know, completely revolutionize this animal's life. And then, you know, they come out and they look at it and they kind of, you know, or they can just ignore it and walk away, which is absolutely <laughs> fine. Um, that doesn't mean it's failed. It means it's just right now that's not what they want to be doing or, you know, they're not that interested in it or it's freaked them out and they're just taking a minute or whatever else. So that, that's not a fail. It's just, uh, you know, it's, it's a choice that they've made. Um, but if they do come out and use it completely differently or it has a whole ream of unexpected behaviours kind of avalanching down from that, then, you know, again, that doesn't mean that it hasn't been enriching. It just means that, you know, we we've hopefully actually learned something new about our animals we've given them an opportunity and if we're doing assessment we've listened to their answers and you know those answers will guide what we do in the future so i think that's one of the key reasons why assessment is so important it's just not not just assuming yep yeah, that worked you know continue doing that now for forever and ever and ever or actually no that fails the animal i watched for five minutes the animal didn't touch it so it it, it, it failed and we'll never do that ever again um, but in terms of how you do that assessment, that's a really difficult question because, you know, the researcher in me wants every single thing that we make to be fully studied. You know, when we when we did the Lion River work, for example, um, I did baseline behavioral data for, you know, several weeks prior to putting the machine in, partly because the machine wasn't ready in time. So it allowed me to get some extra baseline data. Um, but again, that happens. And then I studied for three days after each time the line rover had gone in and then you know using statistics was able to identify that actually for up to three days after having access to this moving device the lion's predator active predator behavior increased um which is incredible like you know you maybe think oh they had fun chasing the remote control car and that's it but actually this check this caused long-term behavioral change um in these animals behavior which is fantastic so i mean obviously whenever possible it's it's so much better to really collect that detailed information but in general you know nobody working with captive animals has it, actively involved in their day-to-day care has the time or opportunity to do that which is a shame but it, it also makes you know perfect sense from a logistical point of view and you know a resources point of view um so there are other ways that you can kind of con- conduct assessment um, one of the things, again, that we kind of encourage within the, the shape workshops is a kind of a down and dirty sort of version of, of assessment where at least 
during the actual animals interactions you're taking some kind of you know score essentially so again the score that you take is completely dependent on what your goal is and you know what you're able to achieve but you know we want to for example really find out you know we put this boomer ball in to increase activity is it actually working so we put the ball in for the first time and um you know we've got a, a scoring system of zero to three with zero being no interaction three being high interaction and the lion goes to town on the ball and has a great time and fantastic it's three out of three but then we put it in a week later and actually the lion has a bit of fun with it but you know he's interacting with it but it's not nowhere near the intensity of the of the first presentation so maybe it's a two out of three or even a one out of three depending on you know how much that's changed but again obviously you've decided that in advance so you're not kind of making it up as you go along and then we put it in a week later and it's definitely a one out of three so okay so this device was we know this device can get fantastic interaction but by putting it in once a week it's not achieving that so maybe actually let's leave it two weeks let's leave it three weeks and see if that changes the intensity um and you know years ago there was a fantastic paper that came out of Peyton zoo where they kind of established that in order to keep that high intensity behavior from a novelty factor from no novel objects um, for big cats they, they could only put the device in i think once every six weeks um, which if you're relying on novelty to be the kind of the be all and end all of your enrichment program you know if you can only put it in once every six weeks that's a you know you need a lot of stuff you need a lot of storage to be able to keep that that kind of that high intensity behavior with all your enrichment devices but at least by taking just that kind of simple scoring each time you can still make those decisions and they're, they're informed by the reaction of the animal if that kind of makes sense yes and this is so super interesting right because it makes you think about okay is high intensity necessary um mm -hmm. or is low intensity you know consistency is that fine as well um and uh, because it also makes you think about uh, rebound behaviors or you know if you don't have access to something and suddenly you get it you know you go all crazy into town with it and then it you know the novelty wears off in a way but maybe the I have access to it regularly even though my intensity is lower I still very much enjoy it it's uh -huh. kind of really hard right to kind of look at okay so you know how are we going to use what the animals are telling us to understand whether whether this or that is a necessary level of whatever it is that we're looking for right yeah no absolutely and i you know again like this is the this is the real critical point of whenever there's assessment being done you still got to look at it you don't you don't just get led by the data you've got to actually critically kind of appraise it and say i remember having a conversation years ago with a with the carnival keeper where i you know I, we were talking about the fact that they put stuff in enclosures and the animals interacted with it initially and then you know three days later the item's still lying there it hasn't it hasn't been touched it hasn't been moved so you know i was saying well okay so i gave the example of this painting paper where they said about you know every six weeks and they were like oh but you know they've got this one enrichment item that they love you know they they use it all the time even if it's left in the enclosure and i was like, well you know that's a perfect example that that you know that that's being used regularly you know regardless of frequency of introduction they they're getting a lot out of using it so using that information again decide you know actually i don't, I don't want to take this item away because the animal 
seems to be quite happy to pick the, the timings in which it interacts with it. So leave it freely available. And then the other stuff where, you know, it does get ignored for days and days, then, then you can look at how you want to balance the introductions of those versus the one that gets used all the time and, you know, make those informed decisions. And, and like you say, it doesn't necessarily matter that you're not always getting three out of three, especially if you do only have a few devices that get those kind of reactions actually you know again an informed welfare decision what's better to only put it in every six weeks and get three out of three and then in the meantime they've got like two weeks of nothing or you know getting regular 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 you know medium to low interactions but it's you know it's consistent kind of thing all of those decisions are completely based on the individuals the working circumstances so that there isn't a one size fits all enrichment program that you can just slap across any you know animal in any collection and go yeah this will work it's all got to be tailored and it's all got to be assessed appropriately to you know to work with the animals as individuals yes actually excellent because that takes me right to the next topic which you and valerie and and others talk about a lot uh, this importance of looking at the individual so obviously we have ideas about species specific behaviors and then you know you and val have presented all over the world i'm sure by now on the importance of individuals looking at individuals and please tell us more about that yeah no I, I, well as you say it's just it's it's tailoring those programs to make sure that they you know we, we, I, again the, the easiest way of giving this kind of example is when you're sitting in a a, a classroom that's too warm or too hot you've got a group of people and you can say, look, we're all the same species. We're all dealing with exactly the same kind of current climate conditions. Some of you are wearing jackets. Some of you are, you know, wearing t-shirts. Some of you are, you know, clearly freezing. Some of you are really too hot, but so we're e each individually kind of experiencing the same conditions, but very, very differently. And, and so that assumption that, you know, again, there's that one enrichment item that works for all primates, all carnivores, you know, or who stock, and it's just going to magically create these behaviors that you want to see doesn't exist. It's got to be tailored. Um, and we've, and we've got to cater for that accordingly. And obviously there are, you've got to balance that, especially if you're, you know, dealing with like group living animals and things, then you, you need to be very careful about, you know, how you balance the group's needs versus the individual's needs. And actually, you know, in some cases, for example, where you've got dominance hierarchies and things, you then have to be very careful in how you, you kind of implement those kind of um, changes um, and maybe you want to use, you know, less items to actually allow the dominant individual to reinforce their, um, reinforce their status within the group. If, if they've got a very strong already kind of dominance hierarchy and you know that, you know, eventually everybody in the group will get a go. It must be the lowest individual, you know, really doesn't get you know, a few hours later, doesn't get that opportunity. Or if you haven't got a stable, hierarchy then actually you need to put lots and lots of different opportunities out so nobody is getting you know pushed out or you know not getting the, the appropriate opportunities and things but again obviously all of those decisions are made by the people who are working with them day in day out and know these animals well enough to make those informed decisions it's it's very hard for someone working on the outside to make that kind of informed decision um, and that's actually why I love, you know, it, in many ways, kind of what I do is I, I'm permanently an outsider now. I'm kind of always coming in from the outside to kind of hopefully deliver stuff that the keepers want and, and need for their animals. But it's, 
I, it means I have to be permanently led by other people's knowledge and kind of have to have those really good conversations with people about, you know, right now we're developing for, for our August Patreon build, we're developing a brand new feeder for three species that we've never worked with before. So we're having lots of really in-depth conversations with the, with the guys that work with these animals. And we'd made some assumptions at the very beginning. We'd done our research on the animals and we'd made some assumptions. And actually it was really interesting to have some of those assumptions then broken down by the people that work with them all the time going, well, actually, no, that's not going to work with these guys. Um, so there's some really wonderful kind of brainstorming and back and forth conversations that really mean that these devices hopefully will actually be much more usable generally in the long term because we've had those kind of conversations based on those individuals and those species and those adaptations and things so i think it can be a really positive thing actually rather than a limiting thing yes absolutely and you do so much building in different ways and you know from real you know almost exhibits and smaller habitats to of course the devices and the structures that go within it and when we're thinking about individuals also we especially you know something that's very dear to my heart and i know yours as well is this whole approach of life across lifespan and you know what young animals might want and need versus what older animals need and maybe you have some examples of how you have adapted enclosures or habitats to the extent of those individual differences and, and needs and preferences yeah i mean well so um again well funnily enough the patreon build that we did for this month actually was was an enclosure renovation for uh, two rescued monkeys um and the male both, both had come from rescued situations but the male physiologically is a lot less kind of capable than the female she's a lot smaller she's a lot lighter so um the kind of the the key there was in in we you know obviously went in wanting i had one day to kind of add as much furniture and stuff in as possible um but unlike a normal primate group where you know you'd want we'd put in lots of moving stuff you know to really challenge them and to build their balance and their coordination and their muscle structures and things we you know we knew that by doing that for this male that would a you know actually probably really freak him out and make him feel unsafe in his environment but also would potentially mean that he couldn't use half of the stuff that we were putting in so it was kind of a case of putting things in that had a little bit of movement that just you know almost acts a little bit like sort of physical therapy where you know it's 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 challenging him a tiny bit but no not not to out of his comfort zone but still allowing you know him to develop to develop that balance and coordination and also then creating some spaces where the female, if she wants to get away from him because she is more agile and, you know, more able to deal with those challenges, essentially that also provided her with escape positions within the enclosure if she chose to be on her own. So it was kind of a very interesting challenge. And actually, again, that whole idea about you making assumptions about animals, um, all of those conversations that we had, you know, we were under the impression that the male was going to come out and it, the first thing that he touched that moved was going to completely freak him out and send him off, you know, running back into the house. But actually, um, we watched him on the first time out. They, initially, they went around and they stuck to all of the old structures, um, which, again, is one of the reasons why we never take out, you know, we never strip out an enclosure completely because actually, you know, again, that they're used to these old structures they trust these old structures that they you know they know they know what they're about so they literally you know patrolled around the entire enclosure looking at every single new thing but via the old 
walkway system that they you know that they'd had from before um all the stuff that was you know still in one piece enough to leave behind um but allowing them that time to do that we actually then watched the male kind of increase in confidence and he did actually come down onto one of the slightly wobbly platforms that again i kind of reinforced enough that it, it had a tiny wobble but it wasn't going to tip it wasn't going to push him and he actually dealt with it incredibly well um and we were very surprised we really thought he was gonna that was you know that could be him you know back in the house again for the night sort of thing to kind of to to to, to go but he, he did it once and then you actually then saw an increase in his confidence and he went around and had another look at everything and then he came back twice more to that wobbly platform and just sat down and had a groom on it, which was so wonderful to see. And then we actually left the camera trap overnight to see if they did any more exploring. And in the early morning before anybody was up and about, he and the female were both on one of the other platforms that again, we weren't sure, you know, I'd hoped that I'd created it stable enough that he would be fine, but he was actually climbing up fire hose to get there, which again, we weren't necessarily expecting. So it's, it's creating those within that environment. It's creating those opportunities that, that, allow those animals to be stretched but you know if they are older if they are you know geriatric or if they are you know if they have physical disabilities and things still making sure that there's enough accessible to kind of keep them comfortable and, and have that sense of safety in their environment yes that's absolutely wonderful thank you so much for all these stories they're really really good and i really enjoy also often you know when we talk about safety health and safety we often talk about the physical parameters or know that you don't you know i don't know lose a finger or you know hurt yourself or die in the process and 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 some of this these things can be extremely serious and the shape of enrichment also has a dedicated section where you can actually talk about uh, anonymously uh, also about what you know you did enrichment wise what happened if an animal got injured or worse and it really allows also for us to share and learn from each other and at the same time, what you just talked about also points very much to something that I think is extremely important, that is psychological safety. So mm -hmm. the things of, you know, confidence and feeling that you can do it or that you, you know, want to explore, but at the same time, having those options to patrol, you know, the rim on the known paths as you explore the new things. And this psychological safety, which can be, of course, in social groups, but also, you know, all the things that you have talked about with regards to exploring new things in your environment and how animals can surprise us. Can you talk a little bit more on, you know, the things that you focus on when you're looking at safety concerns of all kinds? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and again, you know, that, that, that really shouldn't be under stress, that psychological safety importance. But again, we, when we're doing workshops and things we always try and identify if, if an animal's got like a favorite part of the enclosure for example as, especially if it is something like you know increased visibility or you know increased exploration then what we actively would, would again what sort of people want to do is they go oh well we know the animal likes hanging out here so let's put the enrichment device here because they're more likely to explore it and use it and it's like actually no that's that's their safe spot that's the place they like so don't mess with that you know leave it alone and try it, you know, if your whole point is to, you know, get them more visible or get them moving around then put it somewhere else, because then if they like it, then it's actually going to attract them and encourage them into using that part of the enclosure as well sort of thing. So that, that psychological safety is, is so important and actually getting that wrong could be so detrimental. But yeah, obviously, as you say, there's, there's so many 
physical kind of safety aspects as well and you know it's it's a full kind of it's it's usually everyone's worst talk that we tend to give because it's it's you know at least an hour you know or half an hour to an hour of basically telling people everything that they could possibly do wrong with their animals um when you kind of sort of see people's faces dropping the important thing when we're kind of talking about safety is actually a lot of the things that could go wrong are easy to avoid um especially when you've got you know an outside perspective it's it's really easy and again i've done this myself when you're when you're very focused on doing something and you think it's a great idea and you're really kind of keyed in on the on the kind of the nitty-gritty of it you can lose sight of some of the broader things that are actually to somebody you know you then come in and say oh what's this idea then and you explain it to them and they go well you know have you thought of this or you know what what happens if this goes wrong kind of thing so it's 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 taking that outside perspective is really really beneficial when designing new enrichment devices and and new ideas and concepts um but obviously you know a lot of it's common sense um and obviously uh, rob young's um book on enrichment you know he has a really good kind of almost like a risk assessment essentially process that you know you go through um where you just you ask yourself a lot of questions you know can they hurt themselves can they hurt each other can they hurt people and you know hopefully these are questions that people would be asking themselves anyway but it's sometimes really good just to have that tick list to kind of make sure that you've really gone through okay what is the very worst thing that could possibly happen here and then how likely is that um because the trouble is when you do get a safety issue the knee-jerk reaction from people is okay we have to stop doing this you know enrichment's dangerous enrichment hurts our animals they were perfectly fine before when they were left in their environments and we didn't mess with them and now you know we've put something in and it's it's done them some damage we we can never do that again um you know there's so many places around the world that you know we're not allowed to use rope with the primates anymore because 25 years ago a young primate got caught up in some frayed rope and and died potentially um that has happened in many, many occasions, but instead of kind of thinking, okay, well, right, any sign of any frayed rope, we go in and we cut that out, they just take the rope out, which isn't necessarily, you know, the best decision from the animal's point of view. And again, you've got to look at, okay, well, before that point, we had 10 years of using rope where no animals got hurt because there wasn't any frayed rope to get caught up in sort of things. So it's measuring those risks and, and, you know, looking at the pros and cons of, okay, well, what's the benefit of putting this in versus what's the risk of putting it in and making that informed decision. And, and again, monitoring, you know, even if you're not doing in-depth assessment on it, anything new going into an environment, you need to watch because as we've already said, we have this idea of how an animal is going to respond to it, but oftentimes the animal does something completely different that we could never have predicted. And that's really, really important that we kind of see how they use it differently and if suddenly the way that they're using it differently becomes a risk yes no absolutely and i think you made such great points there specifically also to the things that we can easily avoid by you know making sure we have checks and like you say we we visit still facilities where we see frayed rope and then you know it's the baby in the bathwater gone um, rather than saying, well, you know, if we would have been more stringent on making sure freight rope would be cut at all times and all those types of things, a lot of the enrichment activities that we're doing today uh, could still be going on. And also this whole point of 
you know, it's, it reminds me also of, you know, all, all the people that are happy visiting the zoo. They think their programs are great. And then we have one complaint and suddenly everything, you know, has to change um, rather than saying, so what was that complaint about or what was that risk? Uh, what just happened or that accident? How did that happen? And can we avoid it in the future? Right. Mm -hmm. So it's like losing the perspective of all the years of, you know, uh, like I'm sitting on a chair. I don't know. Are you sitting on a chair? Yes. Have you ever fallen off a chair? Oh, yes. Yeah, me too. Are you still sitting on a chair? Yes. I, I am. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, yeah, I mean, there's a risk to sitting on chairs, but you know, it's, it's it most of the time we're okay. Right. Yep. So, yeah. So the, I think you made so many great points. Thank you for that. And I know that you are um, always looking at, you know, how can I make cool stuff for animals activities but also with you know not so much material there's not so much money or time so there's some limitations and of course uh, julian chapman and and you um you know have talked about that also for example at um at a workshop in in romania uh, but i know that you really like this how do you overcome limitations so maybe you can share a story almost at the end of the podcast on how you overcome or have overcome some of these limitations how do you do it yeah i think well i mean there are there are so many limitations and that's kind of that's that's one of the worst things when when we're teaching courses and things you know you get these people really excited and you know you send them home more motivated to go and you know create these amazing enrichment programs and then you know they hit roadblocks with them within their own institutions that you know mean that that creativity almost dies a little bit so yeah sometimes you have to be quite creative and i think one of the one of the best ways of getting around those limitations is 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 kind of being a better people person if that makes sense um obviously a lot of people work with animals because they don't necessarily want to work with people um which means that they don't always have the the kind of the the ability to get people to think on their wavelength so you know and i i again i can be very similar to that like and but it's sort of the the years that i had on the education sort of side of things actually really taught me different kind of ways and and, and means of getting around people and kind of you know finding what what's their reason for saying no and can we kind of tweak that to bringing it back to yes kind of thing um so like you say budget you know is a prime example um and that's that's actually the whole reason that chris and i started doing the team building workshops in the first place because we had all of these ideas that we wanted to develop we knew we didn't have time we knew we didn't have the money to to experiment with materials and things um and so our answer was to basically get corporate groups to come and pay for them for us um, so you know nowadays we're really focused also on the human team building aspect but actually when we first started we didn't really care if the corporates were having a good time or not we just wanted to you know them to build the stuff and pay for it kind of thing um so um so yeah so actually you know kind of that that was our biggest way i think of developing new ideas and and again with a, with a new platform that we're doing i'm really excited because it is it's it's people are helping fund development of new ideas so again the design that we're doing for august where it's something that we would never have been able to achieve without having that space of okay well we, we we want to design this we need some funding behind it and some time behind it um to develop a, a brand new design that 
you know, hopefully once we've worked it out and we've, we've prototyped it and kind of worked out the kinks and stuff, then it'll be really easy for people to reproduce elsewhere. But, you know, if we hadn't had that initial bit of money to kind of spend to, to kind of test the materials and things, then we'd never would have achieved it. So it's, it's kind of, again, finding different ways around things like, okay, we, we can't use naturalistic looking stuff in this environment because we might get a complaint, you know, well, okay, what if we have an educator standing there and explaining how amazing it is for these animals? Um, you know, I was stood outside a bear enclosure listening to people complaining about the fact that, you know, they'd given the bears some yellow pages to tear up. And, you know, the people were saying, oh, you know, it's awful. They don't clean up after people littering in their parks and stuff. And then I happened to overhear it. So I stepped in and said, oh, well, no, actually the keepers have done that deliberately. The bears had a huge amount of fun doing it. And those people went away much happier than if they'd have just walked up to the enclosure and it had been completely clear and pristine looking. You know what I mean? It's just kind of, it's, it's, it's finding ways of, of dealing with those potential complaints. Again, risk assessment. What's, what's the worst that could happen if we try this out and how can we, how can we kind of get around it? Wonderful. So you have not only touched upon, you know, money that is needed or time and materials, but also the limitations that we can have in our minds or in our attitudes or philosophies towards different things. And, you know, and I think that's, that's such an important part as well to, you know, keep asking what kind of, what are the questions we want to be asking? And it also often points to, you know, one of those sentences that we often hear about, um, you know, we've always done it this way. And perhaps, you know, some people say it's the most dangerous question. I don't necessarily think so because, you know, maybe that is the best way to do it. You know, just because we have done it that way always, it doesn't mean that it's a bad way, but we have to ask whether it is the best way, right? And, uh, and so our limitations can be in structures and money and so on, but it can also be in our minds. So, and I really enjoy also that connection that you have made and the importance of, you know, people who care for animals, connecting to the public or broader messaging for education, because you, as you said earlier, of course, you know, one of the reasons that zoos and aquariums or safari parks, any parks are open is also for those types of messaging. And, and you have worked many years in that. So thank you so much for sharing all these stories and practical pointers on environmental enrichment. Maybe you can conclude with a, a nice enrichment story because we all love animals and enrichment stories. Uh, so maybe you have like a favorite. I know you have done lots of different ones and creative designs. So maybe you can uh, tell us one more just before you go. Uh, oh, you put me on the spot there. I'm trying to think now. <laughs> <laughs> you have so many. <laughs> um, no, I think, I mean, I, I think the, I, I have so many. And, and I'm, I know I'm really lucky because, because I, there's, there's pros and cons to working as an outsider. So, you know, I, because I work with so many different places across, you know, different countries and things, I, I've had the opportunity to work with a whole range of people and animals that, you know, if I just stayed working in one collection, I never would have had the opportunity to. So I, I have a lot of favorite stories. Um, I think, I think my favorite designs are the ones where we've really kind of pushed our luck with and, you know, and, and again, you know, sometimes actually just been lucky that they've actually kind of worked out as well as they have. And, and I think that sometimes is, you know, part of the, the recipe is that, that little bit of, little bit of luck to kind of, you know, just, just kind of get you over the line and, and you, you then, discover a new thing that 
you know you wouldn't have sort of thought of before like i the um the design we've done a few times now for the the anteaters um we um it, it's basically a design that goes into a public viewing window um to allow the, the public to see the anteaters using their amazing you know tongue adaptation to, to retrieve the food um but the very first time we tried that it was literally you know i had a, a scrappy piece of you know perspex that had smashed off a part of an enclosure somewhere and i just happened to have some film canisters and and you know so cable tied them onto the back and you know the keepers that I was working with at the time were happy to kind of test it out by putting it on the back of a of a door which was enough to prototype the idea and it then took i think a year or two before we actually then got the funding to actually build a proper version of it that would actually mount into the window um but just that moment where the first time we put it in the window and the anteater came over and started interacting with it and then the reaction from the public of you know how incredible it was not only actually to see the the behavior which was obviously what we wanted to show but actually just seeing the anteater that close and she had a baby on her back as well which obviously always you know the public generally love but just having that really up close view of this animal that um I knew for years we'd struggle to get people engaged with because normally when they see the anteaters, they're lying, you know, curled up in a ball with a tail over them. So it just, you know, it's just a blob of fur. There's no, you don't get to see the amazing claws. You don't get to see the amazing long nose. You don't get to see the tongue. And it was just that magic moment of, you know, a bit of patience because it had taken a very long time to get from the scrappy prototype to the, the finished design, but it was worth it. And, you know, we've now done that in various different versions again for giant anteaters even pangolins um and um and and just kind of seeing seeing how that's now worked because we we kind of got that opportunity again just from kind of applying human logic in a slightly different way and getting the, the funding for it in a slightly different way you know but it, it you know that that i think is one of my favorites it sort of sticks with me as as a real kind of success moment but again the the role that luck played in that was pretty incredible so it's just you know picking the right moments essentially wonderful thank you so much i would definitely have to you know put a photo with the podcast on the anteaters because it's pretty awesome i've seen those uh, or maybe a link to a video you have but thank mm -hmm. you so much mark for coming on today sharing all your information on enrichment you and i are working on the theory of environmental enrichment course which will be launching very soon and we're going to give more details very very soon and so that's exciting i'm delighted to work with you on that so thanks so much for coming on today and we'll make sure to you know link to shape of enrichment team building with bite your patron program and anything else so thanks so much for being with us today thank you so much for having me on already the end of the podcast I hope you enjoyed that as much as we did. Find us on your favorite platform and leave your comments and suggestions. Or go to the Animal Concepts website to send us your questions and feedback. We are so happy to answer them and address them in future podcasts. Animal Concepts is dedicated to helping you care for animals and yourself. Are you interested in quality animal care and welfare content? in actions and resources for you to be well while caring for animals, then check out PAWS, the practical animal welfare science platform, which has webinars, science into practice case studies, private Facebook live sessions, and a lot of resources for you and the animals you care for. 
can share your experiences and connect to animal care professionals and scientists from around the world. In the meantime, take care of you and the animals and keep buzzing.